Welcome to Whisper Town, provocative topics discussed freely. My name's Anthony, and I've got two heroes with me today for this episode. I have Ike and I have Michael. How are you doing both? Yeah, we good. I'm good and I'm healthy. How are you doing? Yeah, very good, very good, very good. And I'm all right. Thanks, um, Anthony. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm very good, sir. Very, very good. And I'm pleased to have you both on this episode. Oh, well, pleased to be invited. Thanks. Yeah, love. Yeah, Excellent. appreciate you having us. Excellent. So, COVID-19 has obviously disrupted everybody's life over the last couple of months or so. And one thing that stuck out to me, as I mentioned to the other guys on the other episode, is we've heard from the media, we've heard from politicians, but personally, I've not heard from people on the front line, the heroes on the front line. And the purpose of today's episode is actually to hear from two heroes who have been dealing with COVID directly or being affected by it on the day, um, as part of the day-to-day -day work that you've been doing. So I guess I'd like to ask IK first, mm. What has it been like for you on, on the front line? Oh, yeah, thanks. I'm Anthony. Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's, it's been quite, I would say, difficult because when you're kind of like facing the unknown and something you haven't yeah. faced before, um, it can provoke a lot of, should I say, negative emotions, um, especially yeah. fear, anxiety, and, you know, just not, kind of like know what to expect and you know in that sense it's been season quite challenging but um after the first few weeks of it like you know working with patients and you know seeing some of the patients get well and not you know die like what you see in the media it kind yeah. of um calmed some of my nerves and just made me feel less less anxious um so yeah so initially i was quite anxious but now um it's not as bad as um, it was earlier on, I guess. Okay. And Michael, so what have your, what has your experience been like on on the front line? What what have you seen? Yeah, I think it was just um like when it sort of hit, which is like late March, early April, when it really really hit. I think it was just trying to get used to a new way of working. And I don't think that the health service was prepared. I don't, obviously, I think we've known for many a time that the health service is very much underfunded. So then when a pandemic hits, it really, really, really shakes it to the core. And it was just about trying to sort of move resources any way which we can and try. And that's why they had to do stuff like stop elective operations and things like that. Um, so they just freed up all the bed capacity they had so they could tackle this and obviously they'll advise the people unless it's like 
an emergency, don't come into hospital. So it was dealing with that and obviously just made it a case that most of the cases you were seeing were sort of COVID-related, um, which was a bit repetitive in a sense, but um, it, was, it was a new challenge because obviously this is a beast you weren't used to seeing. Okay. And obviously the media has been given lots of different updates and lots of different statistics every day. How did that impact what you were doing on a daily basis, Michael? Did that have any direct impact on you, on how you worked during the day? Or was it something that you, you ignored? Because I, I recall certainly turning off all of the notifications on my phone just so I wasn't sort of affected by the anxiety and fear that, you know, the notifications were almost giving me to, to a degree. So how, how did it affect you knowing that you had to go and be on the front line the next day and, and, and deal with patients that potentially had COVID-19? Yeah, um, I guess it didn't, I never, ah, it's hard to say, because I, I never was like, oh, I'm not going to go in. I always thought, you know, I'm going to go to work and do my job at the end of the day. It never crossed my mind not to go in, but I wouldn't have put myself in a situation where I was unprotected, i.e. didn't have the adequate PPE. So that was always my sort of limit. I would go to work, but if there's no PPE, I'm not going to uh, serve because there's no point putting yourself in that risk. Um, yeah. This virus doesn't acknowledge bravery. So, um, but it was sad. It was sad seeing the reports. Obviously, the numbers, especially when it was when we're approaching the peak and they're just seeing a death rate rising every day, uh, conjunction with some sort of notable sad stories about um, some obviously colleagues, some some colleagues I knew and stuff like that passing. It, it was it was quite sad uh, to see all that. Very sad and very disappointing. But you want you want to sort of provide for the community and continue to provide the service. Okay, and I K. Um, how yeah. did the... Go on. No, go on. I'm listening. No, so I was going to pretty much re repeat the question, really. Okay. How, I mean, how did it impact you? Yeah, so, you know, Finya, because I, I work in mental health nursing, um, and, you know, when you watch the media and you've seen quite a lot of um, people dying and a lot of people getting infected and, you know, seeing the devastation that um, um, COVID-19 was causing... As I said earlier, it was causing a lot of fear. And, you know, um, some of my colleagues stopped coming to work because, obviously, they listen to the media and they're saying, oh, a lot of people are dying. And then yeah. um, you see your neighbors not going out of their house and then you still having to go into work. And, yeah. you know, so some of the patients that, you know, I, I work with, um, they've got severe mental illness. So even when you tell them, oh, um, whatever's going on like you know um you need to maintain social distancing but because of their mental functioning or psychological functioning yes. they're unable to follow some of the um you know guidelines you're telling them oh yeah. can you give me two meters apart it doesn't happen and they're not using like you know the face masks that were providing to them at the time so um that made it quite difficult but saying that um we didn't have the same amount i, I didn't even see any patients that i work with or colleague die so none of the patients in my hospital That's died good. and none of the patients in some of the other hospitals I know died. But I don't know if it's because it's mental health and most of the guys, they're quite fit anyway, although they have mental health issues. 
they don't necessarily yeah. have um, physical health issues because you know um from the statistics of all the people dying a lot of the people do have a lot of you know physical health conditions and yes. um so hence why we're seeing a lot of um you know people dying but in mental health we didn't see a lot of that so um the media story um was quite scary but in the hospital where i work it was like um it's not are you sure you're painting the true picture are you showing us the real statistics of the type of people that are dying because yeah and and that brings me on to my next question ik because yeah there are certain trends that have been communicated by the media yeah with regards to the likelihood of black and minority ethnic people yeah contracting covid and 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 dying from it mm-hmm. um and that is one thing that they have published and i wondered um i know that you've mentioned that no one from your hospital has died from covid mm-hmm. but from what you've heard from colleagues that work in 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 other hospitals yeah are there any trends that they've mentioned that they've noticed that hasn't been broadcasted by the media i guess this one has just been my own observation like you know they've been mentioning that you know a lot of um ethnic minority um, um group are dying um however they haven't specified if or i don't even have specified that you know if the people where they're getting their statistics and their conclusion from is it from just the hospital staff like the people walking in the front line or yeah. is it the general um you know community is it a community at large because if you take a sample from just the people walking in the hospital and draw your conclusion that a lot of black and ethnic minority people are dying then it's going to look like yes black and ethnic minority people are dying however um when you look at the number of black and ethnic minority people working um, in the front line, yeah. they sometimes or they outweigh the number of you know um, you know our white counterparts working in the front line, working directly with the patients. And so you know, yeah. if they've drawn that conclusion based on the people working in the front line and say, oh, all like the black and ethnic minority people are dying more, I don't yeah. know if it shows a true um, reflection on you know the total number of people dying because. What is the statistics saying in maybe places like Italy or maybe somewhere like in China, um, where you yeah. don't have a lot of black and ethnic minority people working in their front line? They have their own indigents working. Um, are, 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 are there yeah. people dying? Are, are, are the front line staff dying? Because, you know, if you're just saying, oh, black people are dying a lot, where, which statistics are you looking at? Are you looking at just the people working in the front line or are you looking at the whole country at large to make that conclusion? So. I've had my reservation with their conclusion. I don't know if they're just trying to, you know, keep their community um, not feeling too panicked by focusing attention on one group to say, oh, this group have more people dying. So you don't, you know, make the bigger population (laughs) or the majority population get scared. I've just had my reservations on that. It's a very interesting point that you just made there because there is a issue with statistics right and then there is potentially an issue with the source of the statistics Uh so i'm going to play out some things that we've heard i'm not going to say these are facts but these are anecdotal things that i've picked up over the last couple of months so initially when covid was uh announced as a pandemic and when it came to this country first of all 
the media line that I recall was it only affects people who are over 65 that have pre-existing illnesses. Yeah. And then very soon after that, we didn't hear of that anymore. And we've all heard cases of it affecting people of all ages and people with no underlying health conditions. Then we've seen the release with regards to the symptoms. Initially, there were like flu symptoms, and now there are lots of odd symptoms that are being highlighted, such as loss of smell, loss of taste, and other symptoms that are now, we're finding out are potentially symptoms or are symptoms of COVID. Then the numbers of people who are dying on the front line. And I think the point you were making, IK, was about disproportionality of numbers, because if, for example, out of 12 people working on the ward, yeah. 10 are black and minority ethnic. Uh -huh. And just let's say, for the sake of this scenario, those same 10 people are the only people working on the front line dealing with COVID-19 patients. Yeah. And then from that hospital, 50% of them die. Well, then, well, if there are only, you know, black people working on the front line in this example, yeah. then yes, there will be a, a disproportionate number of black people falling sick. That's one particular example and scenario. The second scenario is where it's been suggested that black people are being affected by it and they haven't come up with some conclusions, although I've read some suggestions about um, socioeconomic impacts um, playing a factor. Um, Michael, who was on the other episode of uh, this or the other part of this uh, uh, podcast episode, he mentioned about uh, a potential link between vitamin D deficiency and the ability for people with vitamin D deficiencies to fight off COVID-19 specifically. And or there may be other things we're, we're yet to find out. But certainly the statistics and how the statistics are broadcast to us is an issue. So, Michael, what, what is your view on trends that you might have noticed uh, that haven't been broadcasted via the media? Mm, I'll be honest, I'd like to say that my um, my experiences have been broadly in line, but I have seen sort of, well, something that is a constraint, I've seen younger people being well, like I've, I've seen people in their sort of late 20s, early 30s on ITU with COVID. Admittedly, they had sort of comorbidities, but I've seen young people unwell with the condition. So it, obviously I appreciate when it all came out, it was very much, a, oh, it just affects elderly people. So everyone else continue about your business. And that's when they started with the whole herd immunity sort of angle. Then obviously that swiftly changed. Um, but largely it, it's not that, it's obviously the, the, the majority of people in this country are white. So most people getting this disease are white. It's just that, Per proportion, or let's say per hundred thousand, if you're talking about diagnosis, black people are. Some stats came out by Public Health England today. According to their stats, six hundred uh, people per hundred thousand black people get it, compared to two hundred per hundred thousand white people. So it's obviously, I think it depends on how you look at statistics. But obviously, 
if if you critically think about the statistics, you should know that obviously more, the majority of people getting the disease are white. It's just that black people are disproportionately affected to get it. And from your research and or discussions that you might have had with other sort of professionals, has, have you heard of any reasons why uh, black people and people of other ethnicities are disproportionately affected by COVID-19, specifically with regards to the mortality rate? Um, I think there's two, there's two sort of reasons. I don't think anyone has found a definitive uh, ethnicity point. Like, I don't think anyone's saying because you're African or you've got Afri- uh, the continent in your DNA that you're more likely to get it. I think it's a, to, to do, especially, it's probably more to do socioeconomical factors. So you're more likely to get it if you sort of live in an urban area, which sort of the state London, London is. You live in a sort of a more deprived area. You live uh, you do a job which is more customer or person faced in, whether it is community service or working as a domestic staff, sort of cook, cleaner, driving a bus, jobs like that, or even working frontline on the healthcare service, i.e., your uh, HCA or jewelry nurse. For example, these are more episodes or opportunities for you to catch COVID compared to someone who has the fortune of being, you know, a sort of a lawyer who may not have to go to work, who has the fortune of working from home. Whereas for some of the jobs I've listed are jobs where you don't have the option of working from home. Um, compared to, so that's catching it. So you're more likely to catch it if you're doing those jobs. And unfortunately, in sort of places like London, those jobs are like more likely to be done by people who are black or who are with Asian background rather than those who may have a white background. And then on top of that, once they've caught the disease, they're in an unfortunate position where they may, depending on their age, may have some comorbidities, which make it more likely that they may die from having the disease, such as diabetes or having hypertension, which are which are common in the black community, as well as uh, obesity. So if you um, are unlikely to catch the disease and you're black, and if you're sort of over 60 and you've got diabetes, that is a sort of a recipe for disaster, unfortunately. And that's what we've seen. Why? We don't know, but that, that is what's happening. So I'm going to split your response into, into two there. So the first part of your response with regard to the socioeconomic factors. See, my issue with socioeconomic factors is that there are people of all races that work different types of jobs. So if one if one were to make a blanket generalization, which would not be true, that only black people and minority ethnic people did the low paid jobs, then there wouldn't be other races dying of COVID as well. And conversely, Mm. yeah, and conversely, um, there are equally obviously uh, black people who do high paid jobs. 
that have come down with COVID-19. And we're aware of uh, medical practitioners, uh, lawyers and other people who have these uh, different types of jobs who have been affected by COVID-19. So I struggle with this social economic point, but the secondary point with regards to the disparity between black people having chronic illnesses and, and, and the average white person is a point that I am very aware of. And that part of your defense or your point there is something that I believe needs to be investigated further because there, there, there clearly obviously is a link, um, but why it disproportionately affects black people is something that is just undiscovered at this point. Yeah, um, so I think the first point that I was making is about like transmission and likelihood to catch it. So yeah. the government, um, uh, they did some adverts, which I thought was quite funny. They said, anyone can get it. Like, it sounds like a roadman. But it's true, anyone can get it. So the point I was trying to yeah. make is in those environments or those roles, you're more likely to catch it because you're facing people. It doesn't preclude yeah. you catching it if you're a lawyer. You can catch it in work. You can catch it if you're going about your shopping. You can catch it if you're hanging out with your neighbour when you shouldn't have been dead. You can catch it in any circumstance. But if you're in a yeah. if you spend most of your day in front of different, many different people, then it makes sense that you're more likely to catch it uh, in yeah. that environment rather than uh, an environment where you probably don't really interact with different people because you're behind a screen in, the, in an office. Uh, Understood. So that that's where that point comes. It doesn't mean it's just about race of transmission. It's more likely to transmit in places where uh, you're interacting with people. That's the logic yeah. behind the social distancing. Yeah, no, understood. No, no, I understand the point there. Brilliant. Okay, so I liken what's happening now to essentially being in a war zone because I can't think of any other scenario, certainly in my lifetime, where there's been this much increase to to death across the country and severe illness to a large population of the country at the same time. And I'm aware that this is an impact in everybody who is working on the front line. And what I wanted to find out is what emotional support are you heroes being offered from your employers at this time because it can't be easy seeing what you're seeing and then having to go to work the next day as if yesterday didn't happen and the emotions that that can build so i just wanted to find out from ik first of all you know how you've dealt with you know the emotional sort of turmoil that this scenario might be bringing up and, 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 and what support you, you've taken up or if any has been offered. Um, thanks, um, Anthony. Um, I guess what I, what I have been doing is, um, so when, when it first started, you know, I used to listen to the news quite a lot just to find out what was going on. But over time, I started reducing the amount of, you know, information that I got from the news and yeah. um, just, you know, taking one day at a time and just, you know, 
<laughs> believing that even if I did catch the virus, which I eventually did get coronavirus, I would, nothing was going to happen to me. I didn't even suffer any of the symptoms um, when it came. Wow. Um, so, um, yeah. And, you know, at work, you know, we, we've got my, I've got my colleagues that, you know, we just kind of like give each other emotional supports. We talk about what's going on and, you know, how to just stay positive and hope, you know, things will um, get back to normal. Because if you think about it, this is not the first virus that um, people have faced. Um, yeah. And I just, you know, we just um, kind of had it in the back of our mind that, you know, we are going to find a way out of this um, current situation. Um, it might take some time, but, you know, we would find um, a way out of it. And as part of the... Um, organization where I work for, they, they, they provide us with, um, there's something they called, um, rest hub. So, um, so when you're at work during your break, you just go there and relax. Um, just take some time off and they provided us with, um, accommodations on site. So if you were so worried that you didn't want to go back home because you felt that you might transfer it to your, your family. So they had that, um, accommodation available for staff to just oh, stay good. there um for people that felt like you know um that they're too worried about going home and you know transferring the um coronavirus um back to their family um so that was quite that, that, that was quite supportive in the sense that it just kind of like calmed some of the nerves that people um had at the time and yeah. um also we we've had um some reflective sessions where we just sat down and just, you know, spoke about how we're feeling. And um, I think that has really helped. Um, but That's for me good. personally, the main one is just um, control the amount of information I get from from the news. Obviously, it's important to, to, to be informed. But when you overload yourself with so much negative yeah. information, then it is bound to have negative impact on, on your well-being as well. So, um, Definitely. which is one thing that, you know... Um, I've tried to do and advise my patients as well to do. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree with that. I, I did the same thing. I turned off notifications on my phone for about, I think it was about two months. Didn't listen to any news media. Yeah. Didn't see any on my phone. I switched it off because it was just, just too much. Like every, every 15 minutes there was a new update and it was all bad news. Yeah. Doom and gloom. The world was going to end. And yeah, I, I agree with that approach. So that's good. And then Michael, from, from your point of view, what sort of emotional support have been offered to you or, or that you've taken up? Um, so they, one thing the place I work at have done, a few things they've done is they sort of set up like, they call it like a wellness hub. It's essentially part of the hospital that any member of staff can sort of come to and sort of chill out and invert the commas, uh, they provide some like light snacks, uh, which you can just sort of eat and then they've like T V little games stuff. So it's quite a nice uh place which it wasn't available prior to COVID. I'll be very interested yeah. to see what they do post COVID. Um and also they've done other stuff like um provide free meals so apparently there's been a sponsor who's been helping provide free meals for all staff okay. hospital and free parties so they've done stuff to sort of make life more uh palatable at work and on top of 
in terms of direct sort of, sort of psychological support, they've also sort of uh, offered us access to call sort of helplines, uh, dedicated helplines, as well as access to a psychologist. So, um, yeah. Oh, that's good. To be fair, they have made, they, you know, they've made stuff available, which is quite nice, but at the end of the day, it doesn't beg the question why I appreciate not all of those things can be done on, uh, on a normal basis. The question it begs the question why, like, could you do that before? Could you see? So, you appreciate the value of it because you're doing it now, but yeah, why not before that? And that's the question I've got. Yeah, certainly. I mean, this isn't easy for anyone and I'm not someone who is on the front line at all. I'm, I'm as far away from the front line as I could be. But I'm just thinking about you heroes, what you're doing and the fact that in many ways you're having to normalise what isn't normal just to get through the day. And that will need support now and, 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 and after after this pandemic is over because it's not easy to deal with death, especially on, on, on this volume, and to see so many people so sick in a short space of time. So I do agree with you that, you know, emotional support should be offered in the way that it's being offered now because of COVID for, for people working in hospitals day to day, because a lot of what you guys do, um, is it stuff that the average Joe could deal with every day if they were to hear some of the stories that, you know, you guys see day in day out as part of your job? So I, I think it's important. So now I would agree with you on on on, on that point as to why isn't it on offer normally? But let's see because I think we can all agree that COVID nineteen is going to change a lot of things about a lot of sectors and a lot of industries about how things are done because there will be the innate fear of something like this happening again. And there are obviously already concerns about a second wave and the preparedness of this country and other countries around the world when and if that time comes. So the, the natural question that comes to mind now would be to ask you, Michael, first of all, what advice would you want to give the people with regards to preventing COVID-19 and, you know, if someone was unfortunate enough to, to catch it, you know, what advice could you give to people uh, that might be listening to this podcast? Um, yeah, I think in terms of to try, one thing is to try not catch it, so prevention is always better than cure. So, um, sort of, as you can practice the social distancing guidelines that the government have been sort of talking about and uh, follow them to the letter of the law, because I guess it is law now. Um, sort of, the, even though it, it got laughed off with the whole hand washing thing, like if you're going to go out into the public before you touch your face or try yeah. to touch your face, make sure you wash your hands in between those two things. Um, and yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah, social distancing and washing your hands. Those, it, it sounds very simple, but those are the two things which will sort of cut a lot of transmission and if you do touch your face then at least wash try wash your hands beforehand and once yeah. you get it it's, it's quite it, it's just it literally depends how your body responds to it because it's uh, sort of like an inflammatory response to this virus so it depends yeah. on 
you and your immune system, really. Um, so it's very difficult once you caught it. Then I don't think there's a lot more you could do, and except for how your body deals with it. In terms of it, always seek medical attention um, as soon as you can if you're if you're sort of concerned. I guess one of the things that you're at home and you're sort of you feel a bit rough, but you're okay, then maybe you could ride it out. But if you're getting to a point where you're really struggling to breathe or you're concerned, and that's always a difficult point to seek medical attention. So whether that's your GP or whether that's going straight to A&E, I guess that's the decision for you to make, but at least seek some medical attention. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. And IK, is there any additional advice that you'd want to give people? I guess it's just to mirror what Michael has said, you know, just follow the health um, guidelines and, you know, try to keep yourself and others safe. And, you know, sometimes I see people in the shopping center, um, like when I go to, to buy groceries and food, um, you see people yeah. with their mask, um, you know, um, they're still touching the mask with their gloves and it's, it's not the appropriate way of using the PPE. So if you're going to use a PPE, just, you know, I guess learn how to use it appropriately to really protect yourself. Yeah. And because these guidelines, um, they do help, you know, the social distancing, the appropriate use of PPE and um yeah. proper hand washing techniques you know they do help and you know if you can prevent catching it it's more important than you know actually catching it and then trying to treat it because you don't know yeah. how your immune system is going to respond to it and yeah i think that's what people just need to do that's very important yeah i, I i'd agree with that i'd agree with that so Michael, okay, thank you very much for participating in this episode. I really do appreciate your time. Um, what I want to do now is just speak to all the listeners of this podcast now. If there are any comments that you'd like to leave or any questions that you have for uh, Michael or IK or, or, or for me, please do head to the flystroke.com website uh, or you can leave a comment on the episode blog for this podcast. If there are any queries that you have about COVID-19, also leave them there and generally just let us think, let us know what you think about this episode. So thank you very much, Mike and IK again. No worries. Thank you, Anthony.